Welcome to Our Weird World. I'm your host, John Henson. Uh, one of these days, I will get back to doing the cold opens again. I just, you know, I don't, I feel like I don't have to do it every time. Now, should I go like what, four months without doing one? Probably not, but whatever. It's my show. I can do whatever I want. Um, no, I am not sick. Uh, I just woke up. And my allergies are revolting against me this morning. So uh, it's great. Great time for everybody. All right. Uh, this week, uh, a third iteration of a, a series that we kind of started a couple of years ago. Maybe I don't even know what episodes this was, but um, just talking about some really dumb wars. And I, you know, use the term war very loosely, you know, I mean, it wasn't like this wide ranging conflict, but it was uh, two sides who came together and started trying to fight each other. And I guess by the most meager of definitions, that is a war. And so we're going to talk about it, uh, talk about four more of those sorts of conflicts this week. Uh, We're looking at the Watermelon War, the Brooks-Baxter War, the Oyster War. And the Red River Bridge War. So let's get into it. Story time. Our first story is of the Watermelon War, where on April 15th, 1856, uh, the steamship, the John L. Stevens, arrived at the Panama City waterfront carrying a thousand passengers. Uh, And this is like actual Panama, the country, not like Panama City, Florida. I don't know if you would have even made that. Either way, it's not important. It's it's important to know this happened in Panama. Anyway, um, Panama City at the time did not have any wharfs where large ships could dock and drop drop off their passengers and cargo. So instead, ships basically had to uh, dock on a nearby island and then ferry passengers and cargo or whatever into the city. Um, and the problem with that, though, was that this was only doable during high tide and the John L. Stevens arrived during low tide. So they had to wait. <clears throat> and... Um, While the passengers waited for the tide to rise, everyone on board the ship just got progressively more drunk because what else are you going to do on a ship? Um, When the tide finally rose enough for the ferry to bring uh, all of the passengers aboard, which were mostly Americans, uh, the Panamanians were greeted with the mass of just belligerently drunk tourists. Um, One American guy named Jack Oliver uh, drunkenly walked up to a watermelon stand. And the vendor, Jose Manuel Luna, uh, was charging five cents for each slice of watermelon. Jack did not care about this. And he just grabbed a piece of watermelon and just started eating it. Um, Luna yelled at Oliver uh, because five cents in Panama in the 1850s was a big deal. It actually might still be. I don't know. I don't know what the exchange rate is. Um, Oliver did not appreciate being yelled at by this guy, and he brandished a knife at him. Um, One of Oliver's friends sees this situation start to escalate. He tries to calm him down, tosses a nickel at Luna, um, wasn't happy still, continued yelling. Um, So then Oliver pulled out his gun, 
because obviously he's American. He's going to have a gun. And at that point, Luna ran off. Um, another Panamanian man hoping to kind of be the hero here saw the gun and he tried to wrestle it away from Oliver. And during the struggle, the gun fired hits an innocent bystander. And at that point, chaos ensues. Um, hordes of Panamanians started running towards the sound of the gunshot with their own guns drawn and just started randomly firing into this crowd that had gathered by this watermelon stand. Um, they picked Americans out of the throngs of people, started beating them profusely. Um, people were getting robbed. Buildings were being destroyed. Um, finally, police arrived on the scene and tried to disperse the mob. But then when one officer was hit with a stray bullet, the police decided to join in on the riot against the American crowd. Um Finally, a train arrived with an army full of armed railroad workers, um, and the railroad men opened fire on the mob, which sent everyone scattering. And by the end of the morning, after this entire skirmish was over, 15 Americans and two Panamanians had died in what came to be known as the Watermelon War. Um, This next story here. I'm going to go ahead and warn you, all right? This next story, the Brooks-Baxter War, it's very political. It feels very slow and kind of dry, but just bear with me, all right? Because it's really crazy. Um, In 1872, two men, Joseph Brooks and Elisha Baxter, really wanted to be the governor of Arkansas. And that's like, that's never really been like a top-tier job, and especially... Back in 1872, when it was a time where you really didn't want to be in authority of much of anything in the South, since the Civil War had just ended, the entire place was just in shambles. Um, But rather than actually doing something to help rebuild the South, uh, politicians in Arkansas, uh, specifically minstrels who were northerners who had moved south to exploit the poor conditions across the region, spent their time getting everyone back in office that had been there prior to the Civil War. Um, When the 1872 gubernatorial election arrived, people in Arkansas did not care. Like, the entire state was just just an entire garbage heap. Like, no one cared who was in charge. Um, The turnout in Little Rock for the vote was so low that no one could confidently report who had won, and so the the Gazette in Little Rock began claiming fraud. Right? Um, funny how funny how things change the more they stay the same. Right? Uh, this story <clears throat> going to sound eerily similar to some sort of event that may have happened recently. I don't know. Um, after a week, enough votes had been tallied to where. Uh, media outlets started to give a small edge to Elisha Baxter. However, the Gazette continued to claim that fraud had taken place uh, and they pointed to unofficial polling places that had been set up, even though votes from those places hadn't even been counted yet. Um, On November 15th, the Gazette decided to claim victory for Joseph Brooks, the other guy, but official votes actually had Baxter as the winner by more than 3000 votes. Um, on January 6th, 1873, the Arkansas General Assembly met, declared Baxter the, uh, as the winner, much to the delight of the minstrels who, sw- and, and they swore him into office. Um, 
Brooks' uh, supporters immediately claimed that the election was rigged and they refused to accept the results. Hmm, sounds familiar. Um, they began claiming that Brooks had definitely received more votes and that there were just thousands of, of missing votes that hadn't yet been counted. God, this sounds so familiar. I just cannot pinpoint where I've heard this story before. Ah, and I feel like it was just so recent. Ah, um, although the majority of Arkansians did not care in the least and wanted to move on, um, Brooks, Joseph Brooks and his party filed several lawsuits regarding the election, all of which were shot down by the Arkansas Supreme Court. And God, I just cannot think of, of another time in history where the loser of an election just would not accept it. I just can't. Um, as tensions rose, Baxter then petitioned uh, President Ulysses S. Grant to send federal troops to help maintain the peace in the event that people rioted at the Arkansas Capitol. Um, that request was denied because why would anyone who lost an election then encourage a riot at a Capitol building? That's never happened before. Um when Baxter then learned that Joseph McClure, the chief justice who had sworn him into office, was actually planning to kill him because Baxter had replaced some of McClure's political allies, Baxter then again petitioned President Grant for federal help. And this time, however, President Grant agreed and had troops mobilized. Now, while all of this was going on, Baxter was trying to still be the governor um, and he was spending all of his time completely turning Arkansas upside down by appointing good, honest people to the election commission to actually replace the minstrels who had originally supported him because the former system that won him the election had actually been super, super corrupt. Can't imagine that things have gotten worse. Um, he also handed over control of the state militia to the actual state and pushed for an amendment to restore voting rights to ex-Confederates, which seemed like a, a noble thing to do. Um, in November, a special election was called to oust the remaining minstrels, which then resulted in an influx of Democrats winning seats. Um, <clears throat> when Baxter then vetoed a railroad bill that would have illegally uh, released railroad companies from their debts as a way to speed up reconstruction, the minstrels and other uh, supporters of Baxter decided to switch their allegiance to Brooks, who was still whining about not winning the election. So this is where kind of like things have changed. All right. Like all of the, the things that had mirrored history, um, kind of changed. All right. Like if you didn't know, this sounds very much like what happened with Trump and Biden. I don't know if you picked up on that or not. Um, and so basically like, and I don't know, maybe history will continue to play out this way. It'd be crazy if it did, but it would like at this point, it would be like if Biden was just like, or however he talks, you know, just like, Hey, all right. I think that there are not enough uh, conspiracy minded racists in Congress. So what I'm going to do is I would like to hold a special election and get rid of, you know, all of these liberals in Congress, because we need more people like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates and all them. 
And so that's what he does. That would that's essentially what would have happened here. Um <clears throat> where I mean this is, you know, and at that point now Biden in his, you know, complete senality would have just replaced Congress with like all of his enemies. <laughs> okay? Um and so Senator Powell Clayton, back to like the actual story that that happened. I almost just ripped out the whole microphone. Um, Senator Powell Clayton, who had preceded Baxter as governor and supported his election, issued a statement saying that Brooks had actually won the election, but had been kept out of office due to fraud. So this would essentially be like Obama coming out and being like, no, Trump's supposed to be the president. And that would be hilarious and would never happen. Um, On April 15th, 1874, uh, Brooks's lawsuit was unexpectedly called up to be heard by the judge, um, which was a problem because Baxter or his lawyers were not there to defend him. And so Brooks was awarded $2,000 in damages as well as ownership of the governor's seat of Arkansas. And to make things even more awkward, neither Brooks nor the Arkansas court decided to tell Baxter that he was no longer governor. Instead, Brooks was sworn in as governor by presiding Judge Whitehawk, even though Whitehawk did not have the legal authority to do so. So now, you know, imagine a scenario where Trump, you know, and like Rudy Giuliani and all of those people go to like some random court in Florida, like some random district court in like Broward County, Florida. And then some judge who's like this super MAGA supporting dude was just like, hey, I'm going to go ahead and call this trial. Oh, no, President Biden's not here to defend himself. Oh, well, I guess that means Trump wins automatically. I'll go ahead and even swear you in as president because I, as a district court judge, have the authority to do that. That's kind of what would be the equivalent now. Um, So shortly after leaving the courthouse, uh, Brooks and 20 armed men marched to the Arkansas Capitol building and ordered Baxter to step down. Baxter... He has no idea what's going on, but he thinks this is pretty stupid and told Brooks to just make him leave. And so Brooks's group, which had grown from 20 armed men to 300 armed men, happily obliged, stormed the Capitol building and dragged Baxter out into the street. And while the mob decided on what to do with him, a group ran over to the state arsenal and grabbed whatever weapons they could and turned the lawn at the Arkansas state Capitol into an armed camp. Um, Brooks, along with several high ranking supporters, then sent telegrams to president grant painting a very dramatic picture of what was going on and asked for more federal help, namely access to the weapons that were being kept at the federal arsenal. Um, Senators Powell Clayton and Stephen Dorsey also sent messages to the president showing their support uh, for Brooks. And so while Brooks is in, he's setting up his new governor's office. Baxter fled to the Anthony House, which was a hotel three blocks away, before then moving his headquarters over to nearby St. John's College. Uh, He issued two different statements asserting his right to the governorship because he had won the election and sent his own telegram to President Grant explaining what was really going on. Um, When Brooks issued a proclamation asking for support from the rest of the general population, um, Baxter responded by declaring martial law. 
for the next several days, uh, Brooks's 600 men and Baxter's 2,000 men started just fighting each other in small battles around Little Rock and on the Arkansas River. And throughout all of these battles, 21 people ended up dying in just random gun violence. Um, <clears throat> finally, in May... President Grant issued a declaration of support for Baxter, the guy who legitimately won the election, and then ordered Brooks to vacate the Capitol. However, rather than making that decision official, he referred it back down to the state legislature because he was just sick of dealing with all the South's political issues during Reconstruction at this point. Um, In response, Baxter called for a special meeting of the General Assembly. Um, since the Speaker of the House and President Pro Tempore of the Senate were both Brooks supporters, they refused to attend the meeting because, I don't know, I guess they didn't want to, I don't know. I, I don't know why they wouldn't attend the meeting and make it super simple. Um, so Baxter just replaced them and scheduled a special election with appointed delegates from all of the state's counties. Um While both sides worked on the state Supreme Court or waited on the state Supreme Court to hear the case once again, uh, the leaders for both Baxter's and Brooks's militias negotiated a peace treaty with each other. Um, On May 20th, finally, the Arkansas Supreme Court ruled in favor of Elisha Baxter. Uh, The Pulaski County Bar also ruled that Judge Wytog acted independently and his decision to appoint Brooks as governor was nullified. Um, Baxter was reinstated as governor later that day and served the remainder of his term until he was voted out in 1874. So just just crazy how. There are there's just a lot of uh, similarities, you know, it's just it's it's crazy. You know, you really look at it. You have that famous quote, like those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And it's crazy how when you look back at history, you see things that repeat themselves so many times. And this is one of them. So that's just fun there. Um, our next story here. In 1889, Navy surveyor Francis Winslow Jr. was uh, commissioned by the North Carolina Board of Agriculture to map the oyster grounds around the Pamlico Sound in an effort to promote the oyster industry in the area. Uh, His report brought a horde of outside fishermen and pirates to the area who gathered up the oysters that had historically been farmed by the local residents who had been cultivating those beds for generations. Um, when Winslow himself attempted to show up with a group of workers to gather oysters, angry locals fired their guns at his ship to drive him away. Uh, meanwhile, Jones Spencer, an oyster patrolman, because apparently that's a thing, um, whose sole responsibility was to make sure the right people were able to fish for oysters. Um, he accused JC Thomas of taking bribes from pirates to allow them to harvest the oyster beds in the Pamlico Sound. Um, when the two crossed paths on the streets of the town of Newburn, uh, Spencer pulled out his pistol and threatened to shoot Thomas if he took another step in his direction. Um, because Thomas apparently either lacked common sense or a basic understanding of spatial relations or just didn't think that anything would actually happen, he did take another step in Spencer's direction and was promptly blasted right in the stomach. Uh, he did survive, though, so I guess that was good. Um, eventually the North Carolina state legislature outlawed the large scale dredging of oyster beds, but local uh, patrols had problems actually enforcing that law. 
even more so canneries that had opened in New Bern and um, the uh, another port city of Elizabeth City farther north um, were <clears throat> uh, had already opened and were providing a huge influx of money to these cities based on these large scale uh, oyster collection operations. So, you know, like on one hand, the locals were mad because they they have less oysters now to catch. But on the other hand, these cities are now really, really starting to blow up because there's more oysters coming in. Um, as tensions continued to rise, the governor sent the state guard armed with a howitzer to the area to drive out the pirates and other fishermen from impeding on the local oyster beds. And while that worked for a short time, uh, out-of-state companies actually found a loophole in the law and began purchasing licenses to farm the oyster beds. Um, in 1892, the North Carolina Oyster Convention, which has apparently become a thing, uh, doubled down on the state's dredging ban and the things eventually settled down. Uh, by this point, Winslow had grown tired of fighting with the locals for the oyster beds and moved on to build the transcontinental canal across Nicaragua, which was later abandoned in favor of the Panama Canal. So um, fun times, like fun little, like not a super big war, just one person got shot here. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, just a fun little piece of North Carolina history there. Our final story here um, happened in 1931 when um out in texas and so kind of what happened is like before the government stepped in and kind of provided infrastructure for the blossoming western states private companies were more than happy to come into an area divided by wide rivers and operate toll bridges to help people get across um the red river bridge company led by benjamin colbert operated a bridge between durant oklahoma and denison texas across the red river directly north of dallas um, but when the two states came together to build a better and more importantly, free bridge across the river, Colbert became understandably angry at the pros at the prospect of losing a source of income. Uh, the company filed an injunction against the state department or the Texas Department of Transportation on July 10th, 1931, which delayed the opening official opening of the free bridge. Uh, Colbert cited an agreement with, uh, T. Dot, Texas Department of Transportation, that had promised to buy his bridge for $60,000. Um, so when that didn't happen, Texas Governor Ross Sterling ordered barricades to be placed on the Texas side of the bridge. Um, Oklahoma governor, whose name was Alfalfa Bill Murray, because of course it was, because Oklahoma, um, then signed an executive order to have the bridge opened anyway because he believed that the lands on both sides of the river belonged to Oklahoma, uh, citing uh, the Louisiana Purchase, which was over 100 years old and the borders had already been changed, but apparently that didn't matter. Um, for whatever reason, no one actually disputed that claim either. And so he sent highway crews to destroy the barricades, which were just replaced the next day. Um, and in response, Governor Murray ordered his men to just destroy the side of the bridge that was bringing uh, drivers and traffic into Oklahoma. Um, on July 23rd, the Texas state legislature called a special session and voted to allow Colbert to sue them over the dispute, which is weird. Um, Governor Murray, on the other hand, declared martial law at the bridge and sent armed National Guardsmen to watch the bridge before ultimately deciding to let anyone cross the border while the case was going through the courts. As the dispute dragged on, 
Mary, uh, Murray began to realize that the new free bridge could be permanently closed, so he expanded martial law and put guardsmen on both sides of the bridge until the injunction was closed on August 6th. Um, here's what's crazy. Uh, the dispute here made national headlines, right? And even got all the way over to Europe, where uh, someone named Adolf Hitler saw what was going on about this bridge dispute. And the story actually made him believe that all of this, you know, that there were so many little conflicts and infighting going on in America that it was a sign that America was a lot weaker than they were leading people on to believe. Um, the bridge, like, officially opened a month later. Like, everything ended up being fine. But, uh, but yeah, just that something super silly like that actually influenced um the second world war apparently all right there you go part three of some wacky weird wars uh in the books and so uh yeah i don't know with that let's see what we learned today before we wrap up here What did we learn? Number one, a barrage of drunk Americans rained down on Panama City and angered a watermelon vendor, which then somehow resulted in just a bunch of people drawing their guns and firing at random. And 15 Americans ended up getting killed in what was known as the Watermelon War. Uh, Number two, uh, the 2020 election, not the... uh, you know, not not the first time that the loser has claimed fraud to try to get the win back. It's crazy how that sort of thing happens. Uh, and number three, um, Texas and Oklahoma got into a fight over a bridge with a private bridge company. And that somehow influenced Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Next week on Our Weird World, we are looking at some unusual uprisings because I like alliteration. Um, We're looking at three stories uh, of Murder Island, the Jayuya Uprising, and the Hanafi Siege. What happened in all of these events? Why were they unusual? That's why we do a teaser so you find out next week, right? Gotcha. So thank you all for listening. Uh, Keep telling all your friends who like history and keep it weird. (laughs) I'm looking for Mrs. Bubblegum. I'm Mr. Chico Stick. I want to dun 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 cause you so thick. Girls call me Jolly Rancher, cause I stay so hard. You can suck me for a long time. Oh my god. Girl, this ain't no dance flow. This a candy stove. And I'm really geeked up. And I got Modro. 
I wop? I roll. It's all I do. It's the summertime, but yo Laffy Taffy got me cold. Gon' get loose, gon' get low. Don't be shy. Ho, I'm Fabo. I know you want to ride. You a star and it shows. Well, tell them what's up. What's up? Let's go. Girl, shake dat Laffy Taffy. Dat Laffy Taffy. Shake dat Laffy Taffy. Dat Laffy Taffy. Girl, shake dat Laffy Taffy. Dat Laffy Taffy. Dat Laffy Taffy.